Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 360, What is Unitarian Christianity? This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a short interview of me by Tyler Hummel for his podcast called The Antisocial Network. With his permission, I've edited and I'm going to present this audio to you. I liked his questions. I thought these are a lot of the questions that anyone would have when they're just first hearing about this thing called Unitarian Christianity. So if that's you, I think you'll find this short interview helpful. Here then is Tyler Hummel. This week, we are joined by Dale Tuggy, who, as I am aware, is a prominent figure at the Unitarian Christian Alliance in White House, Tennessee. How's it going this morning? Very good. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Sure thing. It's, it's great to have you on. I'm curious, just to start out with, how did White House, Tennessee become the mecca of Unitarianism? Like, what, how did your, <laughs> <laughs> what is your little organization and how did it kind of come to be where it is? It's not really the Mecca. Um, There is a Unitarian (laughs) Christian church here that I go to called Higher Ground Church in White House, which is part of the Unitarian denomination called the Church of God General Conference. And uh, we have our mailing address here for the UCA because I'm the chair. The board members are spread out in, I think, six different states. So it's not exactly centered here, but this is where we get our mail. So it's not the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, where everyone has to submit to Nashville, and that's just kind of the... No. The... <laughs> no. No, we don't have the money or the publishing or the churches to be compared with the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. We're not trying to have churches, though. We're not a denomination. We're a nonprofit that's kind of aiding the Unitarian Christian cause, basically. Okay, that, that's a fair distinction. What would you say that you're, the people that are in your kind of offshoots are philosophically? Because... Right now, if people think about Unitarianism, the first thing they're going to think of is the Unitarian Universalist Church. Like, what makes you different than them? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, basically Unitarian Universalism, let's start there. The name might lead you to think, you know, you've heard of Unitarian Christians, maybe you've heard of Universalist Christians. So you might think that UU is some kind of Christian thing. I mean, you should Google them and what they actually believe, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm aware what they believe. I don't know. If yeah. <laughs> well, some people are not informed about this, unfortunately. I mean, I would summarize it. It's basically a recently founded non-Christian religion for progressives that don't like traditional religion. Uh, so if you believe in God, yeah, they might tolerate that as long as you're not a stinking Republican. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, it doesn't really have to do with belief in God. I know I've, I've actually been asked to talk in a UU church one time. They wanted me to talk about uh, Al-Ghazali, the medieval philosopher. And I was like, okay. But yeah, it's not a Christian church in, in any sense. There's an interesting story about why it's called that. I mean, basically, this religion was born out of the corpse of American Congregationalist Unitarianism that was centered in the Boston area. If you're curious about that, you can check out Trinity's podcast 168, The Death of Unitarian Congregationalism. So Unitarian Protestant Christianity has arisen multiple times in America. This was the most well-known version, these uh, Bible-oriented, non-hierarchical, congregationalist churches in New England. The pastor would do some study and become convinced 
of a Unitarian view about God and Christ, and then he would convince the congregation. And then now this church is Unitarian, and the Congregationalist church three blocks away is still Trinitarian. There was a big fight in around the 1820s between these two in pamphlets and in in the law courts. But um, yeah, for interesting reasons that would take a while to go into, this type of Christianity face-planted of its own free will. Uh, There was transcendentalism, German higher criticism, and just some Enlightenment philosophical trends that led them to stop being Christian. But people didn't really see this coming, you know, from about 1780 to 1850. Like, they were a very prominent feature of the American Christian landscape, these Congregationalist Unitarians. They left behind quite a very interesting literature, too, I have to say. I've seen little bits of it. A dear friend of mine in my personal life, she doesn't describe herself as a Unitarian. She says she's a non-Trinitarian, which I don't know what the... The taxonomical difference between those two things would be for any sort of discussion beyond just her not being interested in taking on whatever kind of baggage Unitarian might have. That's exactly it. Some Unitarian Christians don't like the word, and so they don't use it. And frankly, we're trying to revive the word. I mean, it was our word. This other religion stole it. It was coined around the 1690s to mean Christians who think that the one true God is the Father, not the Trinity. That's what it means. So... I mean, when you're talking about Unitarian Christianity, it's usually in a discussion of Christian theology. And then, I mean, UU is just not relevant to that, you know? So people are going to have to get used to the fact that the word Unitarian has a couple of different uses, but I think we can handle it. English is a complicated language. That it is. I mean, backing up a little bit, how do you usually explain Unitarianism beyond what you just said as a group that believes in the unity of the Father without... The divinity of Christ. I, how do you explain it to people? Because that's, I cannot tell you how many times I meet Christians that anathematize the very concept. Yeah. They think it's a contradiction in terms like Jewish Pope. <laughs> and, and, and I'll be frank, I, I'm, my views are very orthodox. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the dialogue. So I, but I, I want to hear it from your mouth. What does it mean to you? Yeah. I think the best way to explain it is to first start with broader Protestantism. So Protestants, starting in the 1500s, decided that some of the developments within Catholicism needed to be rolled back in light of Scripture, right? So they chucked the Pope, monks and nuns, praying to the saints, Catholic doctrine of sacraments, etc. And they said, hey, let's go back to the Bible. Those were mistakes. We shouldn't have introduced those innovations way back when. And the way we see it, people like Luther and Calvin, in many ways, kind of rolled things back to about the time of Augustine. And we just want to go farther. To us, Trinity and Incarnation are later accretions that are not essential to the faith, and they're really kind of confused and confusing, and we think Christianity will be better without them. And we think it was without them in the early years. I don't think there's anybody talking about a triune God until one of the latest works of Athanasius, maybe late 360s, early 370s. The first officially triune God involving creed is the Second Ecumenical Council Statement in 381, the Constantinopolitan Creed, sometimes called the Nicene Creed. And it's only from that time, you know, just right before Augustine becomes converted, that's precisely when belief in a triune God became necessary in mainstream Christianity. What you had before that was a few modalists rattling around. They were always a nuisance. Um, But mostly you had people who thought the one true God is the Father— that's a Unitarian view, people like Origen and Tertullian. And then there were various views about Christ and the Holy Spirit. Stick with Christ. 
origin and novation tell us that in the 200s, there were mainstream non-Gnostic Christians running around who thought that Jesus was a, quote, mere man. So this means, you know, he's miraculously conceived, like uh, Matthew and Luke say, but doesn't have a divine nature. He's, he's a normal human being, normal in his metaphysical composition. I mean, not normal in, in, in practically any other way because of his high calling. Uh, and then there were Logos theorists who started speculating, starting with Justin Martyr around 150, about this Logos character who Justin and the others thought was a second and lesser deity and thought that God couldn't interact with creation directly, so he had to first kind of emanate out of himself this Logos, which they think is the word of John 1. So history calls these Logos theologians or Logos theologians. Famous examples include Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Origen, Novation, the church historian Eusebius, and these are what I call subordinationist Unitarians because the Son is not a second, you know, equally divine person. It's, it's a lesser divine being. What you do with the human Jesus is now a tricky question because you've already got this one guy, the eternal divine Son, at least, well, he's eternal by the time, at least, of origin. What do you do with the human Jesus? Well, origin just had both of them. He had the man, and then he had this eternal divine son, and they were kind of invisibly joined at the hip. So in a sense, there's two Jesuses for origin. It's the same for Tertullian, basically. Later tradition solves this problem by saying that the one person in the incarnate Christ is the divine eternal son, and there is no human person there. What there is is an anhypostatic, complete human nature, which is a, body, a type of body and soul that a human would have that would normally compose a human. And because of the mysterious union with the divine Logos, this particular body and soul don't compose a human person. And so this is why you can call the amalgamation of this, quote, man, but it's not a man because a man means a human person. Rather, this is a person, namely the eternal divine son. And because of this union, you can apply the word man to it. I think that's a disastrous view. I think it's descetic. It has a Jesus that's not really human, despite how they want to talk about it. But anyway, back to the question. Yeah, we don't think Trinity and Incarnation speculations are helpful. We think you can go back to Scripture and find a more understandable view there. And so that's what we suggest doing. Meanwhile, Unitarian Christians differ about other things, such as divine providence, what's the proper form of church government, you know, men and women in the church and things like this. So the Protestants, they differ about a lot of things, and they have slightly different views about Jesus and sometimes the Holy Spirit too. But what unites them is that they think the one true God just is the Father himself, not anybody else. And the Son is a second and lesser being who is a man, um, but of course also God's Messiah, now exalted to his right hand through which God will judge the world. So basically, we want to accept everything that's actually clearly taught in the New Testament. We've studied all of the favorite passages that people think support Trinity and Incarnation, and we are convinced that they mean different things than people think. So typically, these type of Christians are somewhat doctrine-focused, and they tend to have done their homework, to be honest, in terms of studying New Testament and kind of exegesis of these difficult passages. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Tyler asks me if the Trinity is popular because of the gospel according to John.
can we dive into that, that a little bit? Because obviously there are these mm-hmm. spiritual implications we especially see in the Gospel of John where the writer is very kind of implying this deeper spirituality that behind the figure of Christ that we might imagine for just a human being. And I, I would imagine that's why the Trinity becomes so popular the way it is in, in the traditions. How do you approach some of those difficult passages? Okay, this is part of a general phenomenon, which is what I call the canon within the canon. Small-c Catholic traditions counsel us to really build our arguments about God and Jesus on a small subset of the overall passages in the New Testament. That's what I call the canon within the canon. And yes, they did focus very early on the gospel according to John and got the notion that, hey, this is the more advanced, this is the deity of Christ gospel. Whereas the first three, yeah, not so much. I mean, it looks like Jesus isn't God there. God is just simply somebody else in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they thought, hey, here, Jesus is God. This trend actually goes back to before anybody was Trinitarian. It goes back to the Logos theorists. So they thought that this book supports their view that there is this eternal divine son in addition to the man. Well, it's unclear how the son and the man are related, but um, it was people like Justin Martyr and those following in his footsteps that really put the focus on the gospel according to John. Someday, God willing, I would like to write a book called The Most Misunderstood Gospel because John is ridiculously misunderstood very widely. When you read the whole thing carefully, it's very much a a unified composition. There's a problem about the last chapter, which probably was added after the first edition. But um, the rest of it, I mean, it's, it's all from one hand, whether you think that's John, the apostle, or another John, or somebody else, it doesn't really matter. The book really interprets itself when read very carefully. And it actually very pointedly distinguishes between Jesus and God throughout the whole book. And it quite explicitly says that the one true God is the Father and that Jesus is a man. And in fact, it says in chapter 20 that the Father is the God of Jesus, just as the Father is our God. So um, any of the passages people think here somehow are implying or presupposing the deity of Christ. When you come at them with historical grammatical interpretation, the, the case just falls apart. I would say the one thing that is difficult about this book for some Unitarians is that there are some passages that on the face of it sound like Jesus existed at the time of creation or at least long before his human career. Some Unitarians, like the famous Unitarian American preacher William Ellery Channing from the 1800s, they just do believe in preexistence, but they don't think he's divine in the way the Father is divine. Uh, and they basically just think that the Logos or the uh, the pre-human Jesus um, takes the place of a soul, and this can count as a real human being. That's what they think. Or people like Samuel Clark, going back further in church history, think this. The others of us think that actually there's talk as that sounds like pre-existence here, but it's, it's not actual literal pre-existence. Something else is going on. That, I would say, is the one difficulty. But the rest of it, I mean, Unitarians love this book. It doesn't cause us problems overall. Let's skip ahead to some of the implications then of this idea. Well, because you because you obviously have the resurrection and the ascension, and mm-hmm. then you see Paul has the vision of Christ in the Book of Acts, and John has a vision of Christ in the Book of Revelation. Yeah, what do those mean in light of what you're claiming, where Christ isn't divine? What does it mean that Christ is resurrected? from the dead, and then ostensibly rises up to up to heaven and then appears multiple times after that. It means that God has exalted him to his right hand, like it says. 
And um, I mean, maybe the clearest passage is the vision in Revelation 4 versus the vision in Revelation 5. So in Revelation 4, there's this vision of God on his throne, not unlike an episode or two in the Old Testament. And the people in heaven uh, praise God basically for being the one creator. And then in chapter 5, the lamb is brought into the presence of God. And I think all interpreters think this is supposed to be a fulfillment of the one like a son of man who's brought into God's presence in Daniel. And he is found worthy to be exalted basically because of his service to God. And then uh, the two of them are kind of worshipped together, but the reason stating for the worship of the Son is his service in redeeming people from all nations to God. So, I mean, the New Testament view is, yeah, in a sense, he's worshipped or honored, but not as God, but as the obedient, now exalted Son of God. Uh, And this, according to Paul in Philippians 2.11, is to the glory of God the Father. I've said a lot more about this. I have a couple presentations online in a podcast called Who Should Christians Worship?, and there's a paper, and I discuss most of the texts that, you know, is this idolatry? You know, isn't this obviously against the Old Testament? Like, I, I discuss these various objections, but, I mean, look on the face of it, that's the New Testament view. There are two objects of worship, God and the Son of God. But go back to John. Some of the misreadings are really just very clear. You know, in John 10, the Jews jump on Jesus, so to speak, verbally when he says, the Father and I are one. What does that even mean? You know, the same being, the same essence, or something like that? Well, Paul says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, that the one who plants and the one who waters are one. So it's an idiom that means one in purpose. They're about the same business. That, in fact, is a huge theme of the whole middle of the Gospel of John, that God and Jesus are working on the same side, that, you know, they're in each other in this action sense. They're working together, basically. And they say they're going to stone him. You, though you're only a human, are making yourself God, right? So what the mainstream tradition counsels us to do is to say, hey, these Jews knew. These are guys in the original context. They understand that he's claiming to be God, and that, so that's why they're, they're mad at him. Okay, well, you got to keep reading <laughs> because he corrects them. He corrects them that he's claiming to be the son of God. And he makes a very clever, all the more so argument. So his argument is, according to a psalm, as the Pharisees understood it at the time, people to whom the word of God came are referred to as gods, and they don't think that's blasphemy. Okay, so he's saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm actually greater than those guys, and it can't be blasphemy to call me by the lesser title, the Son of God. That's his argument. And by the way, you can't take, quote, the Jews as a key to the correct understanding of Jesus in this book. Commenters call this the misunderstanding motif in John. So repeatedly through the middle of the book, Jesus says something and it's kind of mystical and unclear or non-literal. The Jews here, right, it doesn't mean all Jews because Jesus is a Jew and the apostles are all Jews. The Jews here means his opposition amongst uh, the Jewish leadership, basically. So they blunder into the scene and they blatantly misunderstand him, often literally, you know what, we're supposed to eat your flesh and drink your blood, or you're going to go back into your mother, John chapter 3. They like stupidly misunderstand something he's saying. The point is they're just spiritually blind, like God is uh, preventing them from seeing these amazing things that he's doing through the uh, Messiah. We know that Jesus didn't really go around claiming to be God or claiming to be fully divine because nobody accuses him of this at his trials, according to all four Gospels. 
And this would be really, really low-hanging fruit for them. I mean, they would love this. Hey, this guy said, hey, I'm God himself, or I'm just as divine as God. I have all the divine attributes, things like that. But you, you don't have that. So I think that's good evidence about what he was going around claiming, how he was understood. There is an example in Mark 14, I think that some people overread, where basically Jesus said he's going to fulfill a prophecy in Daniel 7, and the high priest tears his robe and, and yells blasphemy, right? But <laughs> I think scholars have shown in recent work that uh, the Jews just had a kind of, um, they had an expansive notion of what could constitute blasphemy. And claiming some high position for yourself when God has not really given it to you is going to be enough to count. Right? He's saying, you'll see the one like a son of man coming on the clouds. You know, he's claiming to be the one like a son of man who's brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days and is basically awarded with rulership over the world by God. Right? So you know that's not God, because God already has rulership over the world. Here he is giving it to somebody who, in the vision of Daniel 7, looks like a man, which is consistent with being a man, of course. So I think that's what's actually going on. Yeah, he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The right hand of the power, the power there is a Jewish euphemism for God. So he's saying, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God. He's distinguishing himself from God in the quotation. The high priest thinks this is blasphemy because he doesn't think Jesus really is the Messiah or could be seated at the right hand of God. So therefore, he must be sort of inviting himself up there. So I think that's why they go ape on him and abuse him after that incident. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Tyler asks me why Unitarian Christianity is so unpopular right now. Stepping back a little from the, the theological aspect, mm -hmm. why do you feel that Unitarianism is still a minority opinion in Christian theism? What makes it so unpopular among mainstream Christianity? I mean, maybe, maybe you'd find that, maybe you disagree with that premise, but what it, it, for the most part, it seems like there's a lot of pushback against it. It is a minority opinion, but it's also an opinion that hasn't really been considered by most. The situation with the Trinitarian mainstream is, is really very strange. Most people avoid the topic of the Trinity, with the exception of a few hardy souls that we call apologists. Most pastors don't want to preach on it. Most Sunday school teachers don't want to bring it up. Most Christians don't really know what it is and will just immediately be confused as soon as you ask two questions about it. Trinitarian apologists lament that the lay people are not really Trinitarian, or they're practically Unitarian, things like this, or they're mostly heretics. Well, yeah, because when you read the Bible... Jesus is a man and God is somebody else. And they talk to each other. And, you know, God sends him, empowers him, raises him from the dead. I mean, no, Jesus isn't God. And uh, this Trinity doctrine just doesn't appear anywhere, right? There isn't any section in Scripture that a study Bible editor could slap a heading on there which says, God as the Trinity or God as triune. 
right? It has to be cobbled together from this verse and that verse by a chain of inferences. There's a kind of standard argument to try to start with what's actually in the New Testament and kind of deduce a Trinity theory from that. And uh, I don't think those arguments work. They tend to ignore that it's a clear teaching that the one God is the Father. There is no teaching that the one God is the Trinity. The Trinity is not so much as mentioned. Not only does the word Trinity not appear, because that was coined in the late 100s, but there isn't any word at that time, not even the word God, that was understood to refer to the Trinity. So again, that's kind of a dead giveaway that this is a later development. You know, if you believe in a triune God, the very first thing you do is get some word or phrase by which to refer to the triune God, not just to the parts or the components of it, but to the whole. You don't have that there, right? God is, basically, it's always the Father, except in a small handful of passages when it has to refer to somebody else, like possibly Jesus or Satan, when uh, Paul mentions the God of this world. God and the Father are generally synonyms. And look, Jesus himself makes the point in John 10 that beings other than God can be called God or gods. This is a well-known Old Testament usage. The word Elohim very often is understood as singular, but the same word in the same form can be understood as plural gods as well. Sometimes they call the deities of the nations Elohim. They call angels Elohim. Disembodied human soul could be an Elohim. There still is one God. It's just that the word for God can also be used for lesser unseen beings, basically. So God is taught to be unique. In that sense, there's only one God. You know, there's only one Yahweh. Then there would be another one, and so on, like it says in Isaiah. One way I put it is everywhere in the Bible, it's assumed that monotheism is true, which is that there's only one God. But monotheism, that only one can be called God, is assumed to be false because they do use the word God for other beings. It's not like a proper name exactly. We use the word God much like a proper name, but they, for them it's a title. And normally it's reserved for the one true God, Yahweh, but sometimes it's used in a broader sense, in an older sense. One of the things that I find the most interesting about Unitarianism is how much of a surprising influence it's had over the history of American Christianity. I mean, I mm-hmm. going back all the way to the Founding Father, a significant portion of them were Unitarians. Harvard was briefly Unitarian seminary. And you, from at least like 1775 yeah, Harvard was for decades, yeah. A lot of Harvard scholars. We still read some of them. I suspect it kind of dies down a little bit in the mid-1800s when the university system goes from Unitarian to Darwinian. And then it, 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 I, I assume the purpose that Unitarian served kind of uh, as a more rationalist enlightenment version of Christianity kind of gave way a little bit, at least in those circles. And then you kind of see people like Samuel Coolridge and G.K. Chesterton, who were Unitarians, kind of uh, kind of move away from it and move back into traditional Trinitarianism. Why do you think that America had that moment of Unitarian kind of resurgence, almost for the better part of a century? Well, it really goes back to the Reformation. Christians, going back to the 1500s, the mid-1500s, had been arguing steadily that Unitarian views about God and Christ fit Scripture better than any Trinitarian view does. And this had been argued in different ways, especially in England. And uh, in America, a lot of early Americans had read uh, scholars like the famous English scientist Joseph Priestley, who ended up moving here toward the end of his life after an angry mob ransacked his home and library and lab. 
they read guys like that and they thought he made a convincing case. And the Enlightenment, I think, properly made people a little bit skeptical about man-made creeds and just accepting nonsense just because the authorities tell you to. And it made people less patient with kind of mystery hand-waving, you know, don't worry your pretty head, nobody can understand this anyway, just keep saying the same stuff and trust us that it, it is true. But if you want to talk founding fathers, I think you have to distinguish the Christians from the non-Christians. So Christians who believed in God and the Son of God and believed in divine revelation and miracles and all of that, they studied the issue and were convinced by the New Testament or the New Testament in conjunction with other things that they had read, that this is really the scriptural teaching. So they're just being good Protestants just rolling things farther back than other Protestants thought should be gone. Now, there were a lot of non-Christian hangers-on at the time, people like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, who never were Christians in any sense. They believed in God, but were skeptical about any kind of divine revelation and most miracles and things like that. And to them, Unitarian churches were the hip ones, the ones where uh, more forward-thinking and educated people would go. They thought this is kind of the wave of the future and the way the country's going. They're going to be free of traditional superstition and priestcraft, as they thought of them, and things like that. So you always had some cultural hangers-on that weren't really Christians, but liked things that weren't there in Unitarian churches. You definitely have both kinds. And, you know, when cultural forces and uh, bad decisions started leading away from Christianity, these people were no help. Um, this was pointed out by Henry Ware, by the way, in a much-read essay, I think in the 1830s. He pointed out that this could happen and there were people like this there. Part of the cultural mood of early America was it was very anti-authoritarian. And um, you had a lot of churches who said, we have no creed but the Bible. And they literally just would not tolerate any like statement of faith or any kind of summary to be used. And some of them were so, quote, liberal in the sense of in favor of freedom and autonomy that when some other pastors, uh, such as Theodore Parker, under the influence of uh, various cultural factors, basically stopped believing in God, but they still wanted to be preachers, these Congregationalist Unitarians kind of had a big argument like, can we kick these guys out? If your only creed is the Bible and the pastor says, I believe the Bible as I understand it, and the pastor doesn't believe in God, you know, has become like another Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is a problem. And uh, eventually they kind of uh, went with sort of tolerance and open-mindedness uh, to the extent that they started not doing Christian things like evangelizing, founding churches, and stuff like that. And so that's what killed the movement. Now, you did have restorationist Christians more in the middle of the country who came to similar views independently, and some of those are still around. Another thing I think that happened was with the Boston Congregationalists, is, and this is relevant to our current American life, both on the right and the left, they got really focused on politics. You know, ostensibly good causes, uh, anti-slavery, total alcohol prohibition. Well, I don't really agree with that one, but um, other kinds of humane reforms. They got really focused on this, and there was an enlightenment attitude that some of them picked up, which was all this garbly gook arguing about metaphysics, like doctrinal stuff, like, does this really matter? Isn't the whole point of Christianity just to love your neighbor and make the world a better place? 
to the extent you think that, you just stop preaching Christian truth and just think you're the biggest chum in town. That's kind of what Unitarian churches slid into as the course of the 1800s wore on. So, I mean, you still see plenty of Unitarian Christians in this movement in the mid-1800s. But yeah, by the time you get to the end of the century, I think they just were kind of the denomination where the better sort of people goes, who uh, is much more advanced and uh, progressive and in favor of all the correct things. We're just about out of time, but uh, where can people find you online and find all the work you do? I mean, the obvious place to start is trinities.org. And you can also check out unitarianchristianalliance.org for the various things we we do, including our yearly conference and uh, publications and things like that. All right, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, your time to kind of come on and explain all this in such, a, uh, in such a succinct way. I appreciate it. Yeah, I feel like we just scratched the surface, but I really appreciate uh, the conversation, Tyler. Thank you. Sure thing. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Be sure to check out the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where there are a whole bunch of relevant links and even some embedded videos where you can go a little deeper. We got a new review of the Trinities podcast on the American site for Apple Podcasts. The headline is, An Extremely Important Resource. Jonathan continues, Dale Tuggy dares to ask the difficult questions that many Christians likely think about but are too afraid to ask themselves. This podcast likely will only be appealing to the open-minded individual who is not afraid to be shown they are wrong on important issues. If that describes you, this is one of the best places for you to be. The truth has nothing to fear. Thank you, Jonathan, for that kind review. I'd love it if you would leave a review for the Trinity's podcast and the Apple Podcasts site for your country. This is one important way that people can find this podcast who are looking for good content on Christian theology, and specifically for rival understandings about God and Jesus. This week's thinking music has been the track Into the J by Admiral Bob. As always, there is a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.